The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray. Father, we just sang about the Lion of Judah, David's root, and Lord, Today we have the opportunity to look at a history of a king who anticipated the king, the Lion of Judah, the offspring that all of history has been and was anticipating, Lord. So Lord, as we open your word this morning and look at the life of Josiah, Lord, would you help us to see through that who you are? what you're doing, and ultimately how everything is wrapped up and tied together in Christ himself. So Lord, use use these words um, here in, in, in this text that we look at. Would you use it to transform our hearts, our lives, and Lord, cause us to seek after you, Lord. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As human beings, we are often forgetful and negligent of core desires or responsibilities that we have. So when it comes to marriage, health, careers, parenting, perhaps educational goals, uh, meaning as we forget these things or or are negligent of them, we, we often desire good things, but when it comes down to it, we, we struggle to pursue them in a wholehearted manner. And I think this is especially true of our, our spiritual lives as well. The new year provides an opportunity for a fresh start or a reset for many of us. And so for me in recent years, I've, I've uh, begun the practice of picking a word or concept uh, as an area of growth. and and just focus for my life in the new year. And with this, I spent some time reevaluating my own priorities, looking back and looking forward. Uh, And the the aim of this practice is is ultimately to reset. It's resetting. And it helps raise the question of of what am I seeking after? And it provides an opportunity for a new start, a pivot. So whether we're consciously aware of it or not, moment to moment, we are all seeking after something that we think will bring about the good life. And often that's what our New Year's resolutions are aimed at, something that we think will bring meaning, good, (laughs) significance to our life. So we're going to be looking at a passage this morning of the life of a king uh, whose greatness stands out from his predecessors. Not because he himself was anything particularly special, but because he was resolved in what he was seeking after. So this morning we're going to pick up with a mini-series that I've been going through on some of the more notable reforming kings of Judah. So if you know a little bit of Israel's history, um, Israel was one nation under David and then Solomon. And then it was split into two. So the northern ten tribes formed the the nation of of Israel, which was north. And then the southern two, the the nation of Judah. 
And so the, the book of Kings follows both of those hand in hand, but we'll be pulling from the book of Chronicles, which primarily just follows the, the nation of Judah. And Judah is relevant to us because ultimately that's where David's lineage runs through Judah. And is David's lineage that ultimately leads to Christ and is connected to Jesus later on. And uh, Judah is also where Jerusalem is located, and so that continues to be just the center of, of, of life for, uh, for Israel at the time. So for this series, we've been following the events and life uh, of each king through the lens of, of Chronicles, as I just mentioned. And the book of Chronicles is best uh, understood to have been written to inform a post-exilic Israel. So Israel at one point is exiled from the land, and then as they, they come back to the land, uh, it's written to them. So as they think about, uh, is they're granted freedom and return to their land and reestablish their own national sovereignty, and they begin to rebuild their temple, Chronicles is trying to help us recall or to put an image of what the ideal king and what the ideal kingdom is to look like. And it does this through a couple ways. It provides both a positive template of kings that did well in the eyes of the Lord, but it also provides a number of negative examples where the king and kingdom have deviated from God's, uh, God's instruction and his plan. And so uh, last time I preached, I covered the life of King Hezekiah, and this morning we're going to look at the life of King Josiah. So there, uh, the lineage order goes, uh, you have Hezekiah, you have another guy Manasseh, you have another guy Ammon, and then comes Josiah. So Josiah is Hezekiah's, uh, well, let me say that the other way, yeah, uh, Hezekiah is Josiah's great-grandfather. So between that, uh, Hezekiah had a son named Manasseh, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. And ultimately, the Bible says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so much so that he is taken captive out of, out of Judah and taken to Babylon by Assyria. But interestingly, while he's there, he repents. He calls out to God. And though he was wicked, very wicked for most of his life, God hears him and has mercy on him and takes him back out of Babylon and takes him back to Judah, where then he begins a reform where he begins to confront idolatry. Well, then Manasseh ends up dying, and then his son uh, Ammon reigns in his place. So Ammon would be Josiah's father. So Ammon reigned for two years, and what it said of Ammon is it said also that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. So Ammon, quickly over two years, a very short reign, he incurred so much guilt that his own servants conspired to kill him. And then that resulted in the people of the land striking down those servants. And so Judah is under a serious threat here. Is there, there's a threat for the throne, and who's going to reign? But rightly, the people of the land see to it that Ammon's son, who's in the line of David, is placed on the throne, his son Josiah. So this is the background to which Josiah begins his reign. But what we need to understand is that Judah is, is barely holding on by a thread as there's major global threats all around them. 
Previously, Assyria has, has pillaged their nation and taken many of their countrymen to exile across the, uh, the east. Um, we also see Babylon is rising up at the same time. Egypt has not gone away, gone away and we'll see their, their role um, in, in the story here today too. So there, there is threat all, all, all around. So as we look in this uh, and consider some of that background, now we're going to turn and look at the life of Josiah. Um, and I'm going to do so in three main stages. So we're going to be looking at 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and 35. So if you have a Bible, go to Psalms, and there's a couple books to the left of that. Um, and so as we look at that, we'll look at three stages. So the first stage we're going to look at is the establishment of Josiah's reign. The second is the discovery of the book of the law. And the third is the death of Josiah. So the establishment of Josiah's reign, the discovery of the book of the law, and then the death of Josiah. And after walking through the text, uh, we'll take a moment uh, to highlight a couple lessons and applications from his life. So, first, the establishment of Josiah's reign. So, Second Chronicles 34, verse 1, picking up there. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. We looked at one other king, Joash, who was seven, so he doesn't quite set the record, but still ridiculously young to begin to be a king as an eight-year-old. But right up front here, we see several things that it, it tells us about uh, Josiah's life. And the first one, it says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So if you notice, this is a, a description that it, pro, roughly eight other kings are given this, this description, that they did right in the eyes of the Lord. And that's, that's less than half. So there's kind of always a back and forth between someone who's doing right and someone who's doing evil. So in one sense, he's set up among you know, the, the top eight kings of the time. The second thing it says is that he walked in the ways of his father, David. There's only two other kings that are given that description, and that would be Jehosh Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah. So then we see a, a narrowing where he is even in more elite company here in terms of his life and, and what he did. But then we see this third statement says, he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And Josiah is the only king that that is said of, which uniquely sets him apart from the other kings. So right up front, we see that Josiah is included in good company of former faithful kings, but also that he's, he's different. He's set apart from those that have come before him. So the question I want to ask is, why is that the case? What makes Josiah so great compared to these other kings? Was it that he was a natural-born leader? Was it that he was wiser than the other kings? Was he more disciplined? Was he in the right place at the right time? And though some of these things could be true, I believe there's something more central to his success into the great greatness of his reign. 
So as we go down to verse 3, we see this. It says, So for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. What sets Josiah apart was that he began to seek God. Nothing else. And he begins to do this as a 16-year-old. Josiah's greatness has a small and simple beginning. And yes, he's young, and that's unique, and perhaps that sets him apart from others. But that, that's not the focus. The focus is that he begins, in a very simple way, actively seeking God. The same God who formerly blessed David in the establishment of the kingdom of Israel as he walked, walked in the ways of his father David. So Josiah began to seek God, and then we see what this leads to. And the, verse, uh, the remainder of verse 3 continues. And then the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and metal images. So flowing from Josiah's heart to seek God, he begins to bring reform to the kingdom. And he has efforts that remove idolatry from Judah and from the northern lands of Israel. And so we see that uh, Josiah begins a tour of Israel, purging the land of idols and the associated place of idolatrous worship. So in verses 3 through 5, he begins in the south, in, in Judah and in Jerusalem, going about and removing anything that is, is idolatrous. And then in verses 6 and 7, we see that he then moves north to the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, and as far as Naphtali. So if, if you were to pinpoint those on, on where they are, those are tribes and a town way up north. And so basically he's covering the old unified Israel, the territory of that land. And, and we saw something similar with Hezekiah as well before, right? The land had been torn, northern Israel's under judgment, exiled by Assyria. And Hezekiah sees the opportunity to call the remnant of people that are left there back to worship God. And they have an incredible Passover, <laughs> bringing people together. And in a, in, a, in a unique way, Josiah does the same thing. He picks up right where Hezekiah left off, and he goes throughout the land calling back Israel to worship him. And so he, he does this and, uh, and in an attempt that is almost going to unify, seemingly going to unify the nation. So he finishes his tour and then he returns to Jerusalem. So that, this is the first, concludes the first part of uh, the establishment of Josiah's reign. And so from here, we'll move on to the second stage, the discovery of the book of the law. So the discovery of the book of the law, this takes place uh, when Josiah is 26 in the 18th year of his reign. So after cleansing the land, Josiah continues his reform by, re, uh, by returning or his, by turning his t attention to the repair of the house of the Lord, to repair the temple. And likely as a result through his tour of the land of, of Israel, there's a, there's a restoration of tithings and offerings of people giving money back to God and to the temple and to the Levites. And so we see that there's this, this uh, big incoming of money 
into Jerusalem from the Levites that as, as people begin to tithe and give their offerings again. And as he does this, it says that the money was brought from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin, and from all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So upon receiving all this money, Josiah takes, takes the money and he, he hands it over to Hilkiah, who's the high priest at the time, so that the money could be distributed for work to repair the temple. See the temple both repaired and, and restored. In this work, uh, the text points out that it was done faithfully with great order and care. And so we, we see a re, re, recurring theme here for kings of Israel, and especially the, the faithful kings of Judah, that the faithful kings are very concerned about the temple and its place of worship because the temple is where God is present with his people. So to respect the temple is to respect God and to call people to right worship and right obedience. And so we see that that's where Josiah starts as he prioritizes that. But that, that's not the point. The point turns here. So if you look at verse 14, amidst this work to repair the temple, verse 14 says, While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Skipping ahead to verse 18. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. So the book of the law is found. It's taken to the king and read to Josiah. And upon just hearing the words of this book, Josiah tears his clothes. And this, this tearing of clothes is a sign of lament, of brokenness, of humility, that something is terribly wrong. So what, what about the reading of this book would warrant such a response? We've all read books. Have you guys read a book that's caused you to tear your clothes? It's kind of an odd, odd thing. But the author of Chronicles addresses that here as we read on. And upon hearing the words of the law, Josiah, he commands the high priest Hilkiah and some other people there, says this in verse 21. He says, Go inquire of the Lord for me, that those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Josiah sends Hilkiah, says, you need to go inquire and see, is this true? <laughs> are we under the wrath of God? Can we confirm this with somebody? So as he hears the words of this book, he's overwhelmed. He's concerned. He's, he's moved to action to say, is this true? And this, this is an appropriate response for someone who's encountered the reality of sin before a holy and eternal God. And, and likely, up till now, Josiah, he's been a faithful king. 
But in the discovery of the book of the law, something's different. Something's changing in his heart. Formerly, we could have understood Josiah to be a, a God-fearer or to have a God-consciousness that was leading to live a God-honoring life where he's seeking God, he's removing idols, he's doing what he knows is good. But here, after hearing the word of God, something shifts, and he's moved by a deepened conviction of what he's heard, a conviction that penetrates his heart. Some of us here have experienced this. Perhaps from a young age, we had a God consciousness. But after hearing the word of God, after having our ears <laughs> cleared to understand it, something shifts. As we hear the word, something in our mind and heart is turned on, it's activated. And I think that's what happens for Josiah here. But there might be some of us here in this room that haven't experienced that yet. And what do we do with that? And that that's something I hope to address a little later on in our application section. But the point being, there's something here in Josiah that's different, that's moving him, that, that sets a new course. So this, this discovery of the book of the law and the reality of the wrath of God on Judah and God giving him eyes to see that and to feel that and to believe it to be true, it leads him to inquire the Lord. So the, the word inquire here is actually the same word that we saw seek when he began to seek God. It's the same word that he, he goes and inquire. He's, he wants to go seek of the Lord. And so this, this leads him um, to seek God in an even more specific way, in a more resolved manner. And so this, uh, as, he, as he commands Hilkiah and others to, to go and inquire the Lord, um, they go to a, a prophetess by the name of Huldah, a female prophet, and Josiah seeks clarity of the words that he's heard from the law. So as they go to this prophetess, her response comes to them in, in two parts. The first part being of curse and disaster, but the second being of temporary blessing and peace. So we'll look at the first part here of her response when they inquire, what, what does this mean? Is this true? So verse 24 this is uh, Holda. She says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. In short, the wrath of God is going to be poured out because generation after generation of Judah has continually forsaken God and worshipped other gods. Here, there, there's a strong possibility that the book that was discovered in the temple was actually the book of Deuteronomy. Though it could be the whole Torah, the whole first five books of the Bible. But if it is Deuteronomy... One of the more distinguishing features of Deuteronomy is chapter 28, where Moses, on behalf of God, clearly lays out 
what are what's called the blessings for obedience and then the curses for disobedience. So here where Huldah references the curses that are written in the book, I think Deuteronomy 28 is a natural and clear place where those are found. So if you were to go to read that and to hear about the blessings, the blessed life that's there, but then also the curses for disobedience, it's a very sobering, moving chapter that you, I, I could see Josiah reading that and being <laughs> understanding that reality beyond them at the present. It, it's something to be feared. But in the end, ultimately, Huldah confirms what Josiah feared and the reason why he tore his clothes. God's wrath is on Judah, and judgment is coming. The curses that God promised for disobedience will be enacted, and disaster is on the way. Though this is what will happen in the end, this isn't all that she has to say, which moves us to the second part of her message. Verse 26, the second part having to do with temporary blessing and peace. Verse 26, but say to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants and have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. So though Judah is under judgment, God recognizes and blesses the tender heart and humility of Josiah. It is through Josiah's heart and humility, which is on display through his tears, through the tearing of his clothes, it is through this heart and humility that God hears him and God offers a temporary blessing and peace in his lifetime for both him and for the nation of Judah. I want you guys to pay special attention to the heart of God here. The heart of God who always welcomes and hears and blesses a humble and contrite heart. It's the same God that heard the evil man Manasseh. But he also hears Josiah, how much more, who comes with a humble heart here. So though judgment may be imminent and seemingly irreversible, God's grace and blessing, it's ready to spill out onto anyone who would humbly approach him. And I think that this is a view of God that gets lost in the Old Testament. We think God is harsh. He has judgment. That's all he does. But what we need to see is amidst judgment, there is always a call to repent and return. And God always, always receives people who do that. So how much more true for us today, for those who are in Christ? So Josiah's hearing of the word of God has set into motion a series of events that resembles the, the pattern of reform that we observed uh, with Hezekiah's reign. God's blessing results in reform taking place within the heart of Josiah that flows out into the kingdom of Israel. So a number of weeks ago, when we looked at Hezekiah, one of the things that uh, 
we observed is that there's a pattern to reform. And this pattern is that there's first confession. Confession leads to covenant, a renewal of covenant with God. And then out of that covenant, that leads to change, change in the land, change in the heart, change in all. And so here with Josiah, we see that, that there's that same progression. And we see it in relation to the Word of God. The Word of God is, is, is heard, is read, and it leads to a confession on his part, a recognition of sin, a brokenness over that. But having seen how Josiah just modeled confession, this confession then leads to a renewal of covenant with God. So verse 30 picks us up. It says, And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that has been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. So not only do we just see this confession, this covenant with Josiah, but Josiah makes this covenant himself and makes all who are present in Jerusalem to join him in this covenant. And Josiah, together with the people of Judah, they further seek God and commit themselves to him. They remember the covenant that he made with them as a people before they even inhabited the promised land. They remember, the remembrance and renewal of the covenant leads to further change in the life and actions of, of Josiah that is on display in his resolve to obey the law of God. So this change that takes place, we see most specifically uh, uh, showing up in chapter 35 where Josiah keeps the Passover. So there's not time to get into the details of the Passover here, um, but in many ways it was very similar to Hezekiah's Passover, but I would say also greater in a couple ways. We see in this Passover... Um, if you were to compare the numbers of the, of, of the two, there's, there's an, a greater abundance, that the number of sacrifices are near double of Hezekiah's Passover. And it includes generous contributions from the king himself giving a bunch of his wealth, his possessions, a bunch of his own animals for sacrifices for this. We see that officials are giving um, for this Passover. The Levites are contributing as well. And so this, this pass, Passover and what's given nearly doubles what Hezekiah did. So it shows something of the scale of this Passover. But more important, we see the careful obedience of Josiah. The careful obedience to honor God in the way that the Passover was meant to be um, hosted and observed. And so it says that it, the, the Passover took place on the 14th day of the first month, which is the right day. And with Hezekiah, they were a month late. It was good in Hezekiah's case that they did it, but here they're right on, they're ready, they're anticipating it, observing, observing it as they're supposed to. But then also we see here that the author, he labors in detail about everything that's done as it ought to be. And we see this with a bunch of words. In verse 4 he says, as prescribed. In verse 6, according to the word of the Lord by Moses. Uh, verse 12, as it is written in the book of Moses. 
Verse 13, according to the rule. Verse 15, according to the command of David. According to the command of King Josiah, verse 16. So we see all these different moving parts in that the Passover is observed in perfect obedience to the way that God set for it to. And this, this shows us something about, again, the heart of Josiah that wants to obey the law of God that's been changed by it. And, and, and so he, he sees this out. It shows that he is not turning to the right or the left, but he is pursuing God and pursuing him purely. And in the end, the Passover is summarized in this way. It says, No Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah. And the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So what began early on in Josiah's life, the small beginning of seeking the Lord, it's grown into something greater as he is increasingly and in significant ways brought reform to Judah. But ultimately, the catalyst for this reform is the Word of God and the Word of God landing upon the soil of a humble heart who is earnestly seeking the Lord. So it's, it's summarized of, of Josiah, all his days they did not turn away from the Lord, the God of their fathers. That was until the sudden and abrupt death of Josiah. So that's where we turn to the last stage, the, the death of Josiah. Chapter 35, verse 20 says this. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates. And Josiah went out to meet him. But he sent envoys to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. Megiddo. So, we see this ramp up of the kingdom, and then all of a sudden, after Josiah has prepared the temple, we see that Egypt intends to pass through Israel. So, if you know, Egypt is way south of Israel, and they're going up to Carchemish, which is north of Israel, so they need to pass right through the land. And likely, they're going up there to aid Assyria in a war against Babylon. And so again, we see these world powers <laughs> duking it out with each other. And in this case, I think it's easiest to believe that, um, that Egypt is going up to help aid Assyria against the rising Babylon. But the question here is, why does Josiah go out to meet the king of Egypt and make war with him? And it's not explicitly clear in the text but it could make sense that Josiah and Judah, he's attempting to further ally himself with Babylon. It would make sense that he, with Assyria, who has come and pillaged their country, we want nothing to do with them. They're terrible, right? So it, it's possible that he's uh, wanting to ally himself with Babylon and he doesn't want Egypt to go and help, help fight them. 
Or it's possible that he just doesn't trust Egypt. He doesn't trust that, you know, it's possible that maybe they'll just come and plant there and be there and be a thorn in their side too. And so maybe he's trying to ward that off. But either way, Josiah is taking political and and military decisions into his own hands. And so he goes out, and upon meeting the king of Egypt, Necho, the king of Egypt, assures Josiah that he's not there to fight against Judah. And in fact, God has commanded him to hurry. So in a strange way, Necho is the mouthpiece of God. Which is a little confusing. <laughs> how is how should I be hearing from you know this pagan nation what God has to say? And so maybe there's some confusion here. But how how do we make sense of his actions? And I, I think you know perhaps Josiah just unreflectively acted what he thought was best for the nation at the time, in his own wisdom. Um, perhaps. Uh, there's, there could be some evidence that he uh, consulted the prophet Jeremiah, but if that's, that's the case, that's even worse. Because <laughs> Jeremiah later talks about Egypt and, and, and the book of Jeremiah and, and, and what's going to happen here and the judgment on them. Maybe Egypt, he just thinks Egypt is lying to him, which wouldn't be out, out of out of character. But in this, how do we make sense? And in the end, even if Egypt was lying, what Josiah didn't do is he didn't inquire of the Lord. He didn't seek God. And there's time for that. He's done this in every other stage of his life, but here, for some reason, he acts in his own wisdom. He lets the circumstances rule and determine um, what he does rather than seeking God. And so in this, Josiah's death is stunningly similar to the death of King Ahab, a former king of Israel, who went out, and, and King Ahab, he went against God's prophetic word. God told him not to go to battle, and then he went. And Ahab disguised himself in battle, and he was shot by an arrow, and then he's carted off the battlefield, wounded in a chariot. And that plays out the exact same way for Josiah here, which ultimately shows that God's hand is against him. In King Ahab's sense, it's a random arrow struck him. Here it doesn't say it, show it as random, but it's kind of random. He's hidden. He gets struck. And so it's, it's under God's judgment here that he did not seek God, went on his own, and God calls him on it. So in the end, Josiah doesn't actively seek God and submit himself to his will. And another promising king of Judah bites the dust. Josiah was buried in the the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. Jeremiah uttered a lament. And God's judgment would immediately come on Judah, leading to their own end in captivity to Babylon. And this is the life of Josiah. So fitting with so many of these kings that there's so much excitement, so much anticipation that this king, he's got it. He's going to restore Israel to what they need to be. And then just like that, his life is over and it's, it's all downhill from there. 
So as we look at the life of Josiah, I want to think briefly here about two lessons or applications for how do we make sense of this? What's going on here? How do we apply this to our lives? So the first lesson is this. Seek the Lord with all your heart and soul in order to be blessed. Seek the Lord with all your heart and soul in order to be blessed. We see that Josiah was blessed because his life started with the small beginning of seeking God. That's a positive example, right? We also see that Josiah's death was the end result of not actively seeking God and trusting in Him. And that, that's the negative example. So what, what can we learn about seeking God? How do we, in this day and age, in our time, how do we seek God? What can we learn from Josiah about this? And there's uh, kind of four simple ideas that I, I put just thinking about Josiah's life. And the first one is seek his word. Seek his word. How do we seek God? We seek his word. And we do so with a humble heart. Like Josiah, we want to hear the word of God. We want to read the word of God. We want to surround ourselves with it. We want that to inform us about what is true, what is right, what is wrong. And we're to seek that. And mainly because God has revealed himself in, in, in the word, in the Bible that we have today. And God has continually, over thousands of years, revealed this story of himself to us. And we're to seek that. It tells us about our purpose, our meaning. And so if we want to know who God is, God has given us this. <laughs> tells us all about him. So that's the first. Seek his word, and, and we want to do that with a humble heart like Josiah. The second is understand his word. So upon reading the word or hearing it for Josiah, he then sends the priest to go inquire and say, is this true? <laughs> is there a prophet around here that can confirm that what we've said is true? And similar, I think there's a call for us too, that we're to seek his word, but we're to understand it too. And I know for myself, especially as a younger Christian, there's a lot about God in the Bible that I don't know. And it's kind of foolish in some ways not totally impractical, but a little foolish to think that I can just open and start reading and, and dive in and have background knowledge and understanding what's going on. And really, that's, that's why God has given us a church. He's given us pastors. He's given us, and, and today we have so many resources available that we can seek understanding. And so, like Josiah, I think when we hear what we're reading, we want to seek understanding. We want to seek clarity. Is this really what this says? And then as we understand what it says, it moves us on to the next one. Obey his word. Obey his word. So when we know what God is asking of us, let's wholeheartedly get to work. And uh, say more of this in a second, but let's rely on his grace. <laughs> let's, let's understand that, um, yeah, let's, let's get to work obeying, but we're going we're gonna to mess up. We're going to struggle with that. And, and to understand that God's grace is constantly there for us to reset, to restart, to keep coming back to him again and again. But here, as we understand the word, we're led to obey the word, to do what God is asking us to do. And then the, the fourth here is trust his word. So just because we obey, it doesn't 
necessarily mean that we will, it will lead to a convenient and comfortable life. In fact, it will probably be the opposite. As we obey God's word, we're going to stick out like a sore thumb. As we obey his word, we're going to represent death and judgment to others that don't want to see that. And so as, as we obey, we need to trust his word. We need to trust what he's promised, the hope that he's given to us, and to know that God's word and his promises will be fully delivered on when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. And so in that, we need, we need to, as we obey, we need, we need to trust. And I think that's, that's how we can seek God. And that, that's, that's what it looks like to live in and move towards a blessed life. And so some of us might have the question, so what, what if I'm seeking God, but he just he seems very distant? And maybe this distance, this could be true of, 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 our, of your life in general. You just say, like, knocking, knocking, he's not there. <laughs> or maybe it's just a season. A number of us have, you know, I think probably all of us at different points have seasons where God feels distant. So if you think, of, you know, what if I'm seeking God and he's still very distant? Well, just a, a few thoughts there. It might be that we aren't actually looking for God, but we're looking for a specific blessing. <laughs> and he's not giving us what we want. So that, that's kind of a self-centered approach in that uh, I, I'm attempting to use others and God for my own gain. And so, therefore, it's probably appropriate that God's not going to play that game. <laughs> God's not going to be just the, the, the Pez dispenser that you click and get what you want. And so, that might be a question for us to ask ourselves, if God is silent, are we looking for him? Or are we just looking for the associated blessings that he brings? And really, <laughs> the order of this is important. And really, in the Bible, it's we seek God and we get the blessings. But if we seek the blessings, we don't get God or the blessings. <laughs> and so ultimately, to seek God and get the blessings, the ultimate blessing is relationship with God. That's, that's the greatest one. But then he's made us a physical, spiritual, emotional people. So he'll, he'll meet us, I think, and, and bless us in that way too. And then one day when he returns in his significance as well. So another, another thought, if we're seeking God and he still feels very distant, um, it might be that we actually have a divided heart and there's some things in our life that we are holding on to that we haven't surrendered to him yet. And I, I know I've had a number of, of seasons or stages in my, my life where I've, I've come before God and, and there's this one thing I don't want to let go of, but I'm like, God, help me, help me, but I don't, I don't want to let go of this. And, and, and so in that, it also might be that he's distanced because he's like, I don't want just half of you when it's convenient. I want all of you. So as we let go of this, it might be that God draws near very quickly in that moment. So that, that might be another reason that he's distant. And then last one here too, um, in our fast-paced world, it might also be that we are just impatient. Now, impatience, you know, patience is the fruit of the Spirit, so this is a human thing <laughs> from the beginning of history. But in, especially in this world, I, I, uh, someone, someone in our church body was talking about 
um, how their kid was frustrated by a commercial. You know, so most of us have grown up with commercials and we're like, okay, yeah, you got to pay your dues to watch the next thing. But, you know, it's like, but even devices and shows and they've, they've cut out some of that and, and we're so impatient that we can't even like sit and look in a commercial. That's how the world is being trained up today. We need instant results, instant gratification. And it may, might mean that we are too impatient, not willing to sit and pray and ask God for something. And so we, we ask, and then we move on to something else real quickly. We don't actually sit and wait on him. So these are just some reasons that I, I think for us to think about and to ask of our own heart and life, of if we're not hearing God, is there one of these reasons? Are we acting self-centered, looking for the blessings? Are we, do we have a divided heart? Is there something that we're holding on to that we don't want to let go of? Is there just an impatience? And in the end, I, I think we want to seek God um, coming, bringing all of our, ourselves to him. And so with the new year, here comes the opportunity for all of us a new start. And really, there's a new start every day. There's a new start every moment. And so we don't have to wait for a new year to get started. And in fact, we don't even have to wait till tomorrow morning to get started. But in this, uh, here's the reality unless we are being fed God's word and surrounding ourselves with God's people, it's very likely that our faith and efforts will grow cold and stagnant. It's very likely that we will be distracted off a different direction. And so as we get the new year, enter a new year, um, I want to ask the question, how are you going to seek God this year? And then push it, how are you going to seek God tomorrow morning? Get more invasive. How are you going to seek God this afternoon? And drill down one more. How are you going to seek God right now? What's in, what's in your mind and heart before him? Is there an earnestness that desires him, that longs for him? And as we think about this and have an opportunity for reset with the year, Think about, you know, how are you going to spend your time? How are you going to pursue relationships this year in the church and outside the church? How are you going to think about your finances? Is there something that is out of whack there that needs to be prioritized? How are you going to pursue personal growth? How are you going to grow in career skills? Those are all important things as well. And one thing, I, the last thing I think I want to highlight here is how are you going to think about and pursue the church this year? And just a side plug right here, we, we got donated to us from Crossway a, a bunch of books, and they're out on the table out there. And the book is called Rediscover Church, um, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. It's a very good and basic book about the church. And and it's written kind of aimed at a amidst post-COVID mindset that a lot of our, our uh, connection to the church has, has struggled, right? And so one thing I just want to say, this book is not given because it's like, hey, you, you all are doing terrible with the church. That, that's, I feel like our church has been actually very blessed in this season of how we've come together and pursued each other. So don't, don't hear it that way. But to hear it, like how do we prioritize the church, and understand that's an important part of our growth and transformation. And so those are on the table out there. Just grab one as, as you leave, um, and that, that's, yeah, free to us, free to you. So good. Um,
Okay, last point here, last application. God's judgment is coming soon, but his grace is present now. God's judgment is coming soon, but his grace is present now. So like Judah, God's judgment is coming soon, and it threatens an unbelieving world that has forsaken him. So the question is, are we sobered by this reality ourselves? Like Josiah, are we sobered to the the point of tears? Are we sobered to the point of tearing our clothes? Josiah feared both for his life and the life of his fellow countrymen. But the question is, do we have a rightly balanced fear about this reality for our own life? Do we have a a rightly balanced fear about this for the lives of others, of people that are under the judgment of God not trusting in Jesus? And the sudden ending of Josiah's life and the sudden ending of Judah is a reminder that the day of the Lord is fast upon us. Has this reality ever led you to tears? Has this reality that God's judgment and wrath sits on those that are not trusting in Christ, has that, have you felt that to the core and been broken by that for your life or the life of another? Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he was called over and over again to proclaim God's word to a lost and defecting nation of Judah that runs over this timeline that we're talking about right now. And he was perpetually faced with the reality of sin and death and God's judgment upon unbelief and hard-heartedness. And that's why he wept. Jesus was moved to tears and wept over an unbelieving Israel as he rode a donkey in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem so that he might take on the sins of the world and the wrath of God are our place. Now, it's possible he was crying about what he had to endure, but I think he was crying about the lost people that were going to put him to death there. Have we been moved by, to tears of the reality of the judgment and coming wrath of God? Judgment is coming soon, but because of who Jesus is and what he did, his grace is present to us now. He offers the only way out. Jesus is the greater Josiah who sought God with all his heart and soul, who sought God and trusted in him to the very end through death. He took on the judgment and wrath of God and he is ushering in a new kingdom the kingdom that we've been longing for, the kingdom that this whole book has been anticipating. Jesus will come with greatness that we won't even be able to, we can't conceive now. So let us seek God, trusting, believing this to be true, believing that there's joy and blessing to be found as we walk with him in this life, and that as we pass through the veil of death into the next life, to believe that there is blessing there. So there's no promise or guarantee that our momentary afflictions will cease the moment that we call upon God for mercy. There's there's no promise about that. In fact, but 
Also, Josiah's prayer and faith, in the end, Josiah's prayer and faith didn't keep Judah from being exiled, right? That still happened. But there was grace to Josiah as he called upon the name of the Lord. God heard him, and God met him in a unique way that was fitting for his place in history. And similarly, as we call upon God, God will meet us in a unique way that is fitting for our life and place in history. So for some of us, though skies may be dark in the moment, it may be dark in the season of life, perhaps we are overwhelmed by the external circumstances around us. God's grace and favor will be bestowed on all who seek him in the name of Jesus. And this will lead us to the greatest blessing imaginable and peace with God for all eternity. So let me pray. Father, as we come to you, Lord, entering in another year, Lord, we ask that you would help us as a people. You would help us individually to seek you, Lord. Lord, would you help us to be mindful of the coming judgment that is on anyone who is not trusting in Jesus. So, Lord, would you give us a right fear in our lives that we would cling to you. But, Lord, also, would you give us a right fear that we would point others to you. Lord, that there is relief because Christ bared it for us. Lord, I pray that you would grow in us, like Josiah, a humble heart that seeks God and understand that that is the way that blessing and joy and life is found, Lord, as we seek you and trust you in all things. Lord, you've created us for that. So help us to remember that, to reprioritize that. Lord, that we would seek you, Lord, moment by moment, Lord, with all, all that our, our life could, will entail, Lord. Lord, be with us this morning. Um, and Lord, as we uh, move to, as we have a song and move to communion, would you also be working in our hearts, Lord, that if there's sin or, or things in our lives that need to be repented of, would you move us to do that right here, right now, Lord, before, before we um, partake of the Lord's Supper together. So we pray these things in Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.